0: Long time ago, I was working on an article with a colleague of mine who's now in Liverpool, Dr. Paulette Singley, and we wrote an article called Entransment. When, and what we, all we did was talk about where does interior really end in an urban setting? Does it really end at the facade of the building? We start talking about a whole host of resources, talking about what the facade really is, like when does the facade really end and where does the street begins.
1: Welcome to the wonder podcast. This is your host CCB with another interesting conversation to share with you all. I'm going to say, um, when we talked with Annie Chu about being on the podcast, The first thing that came to mind for me was the word polymath, and that is a person of wide-ranging knowledge or learning. And then I read something about polymaths that said, well, you would think with the access that everyone has to the internet and all that information, that the world would be filled with polymaths, but we're not, and there's something special about individuals that have wide ranging knowledge and learning, and that can make the connections to, to have positive energy and and uh, elucidation come from it. So I'm really excited to welcome Annie Chu to
0: the Wonder Podcast. Annie, thanks for joining us. Hey, CCP, thank you so much. And that's really high praise. I think it's the first time anyone used that word. On me, and I tend to use that word on other people. <laughs> so,
1: well, there I, you have I,
0: it. Humbled and you know, honored. Yeah. Well, um, so
1: why don't you tell us, um, tell the audience, share with us how you came to be where you are today?
0: Okay. Um, you know, I was born and raised in Hong Kong. That explains the way I look. Chinese. Um, and I came to the United States for my last two years of high school, and then I continued to pursue a college education uh, with a pre-med focus. And then three years into that, I realized that, you know, architecture is knocking on the door, and that's a different story for another time. But, um, and it's also the reason why I went into teaching is it's really thanks to a teacher's prompt that I pursued architecture. Uh, And I went to SCIARC, uh, and then married my classmate upon graduation, moved to New York sight unseen, and while he's pursuing his graduate work, I started working in the architecture industry with Todd Williams and Billy Chen, uh, you know, in the early phases of their career development, Uh, went back to Columbia when and for my graduate work when my husband finished his, And we both worked for Todd and Billy for a while and then came back to Los Angeles and started working for Frank Israel, the um, brilliant, you know, um, late Frank Israel, who unfortunately passed away in his 50s, but, you know, was a major force of what's going on in Los Angeles in the 1990s, you know, post that recession, right? And then in 96, I started my own architectural firm. Um, <clears throat> somewhere in there, realizing that what I've been doing, both uh, in New York and Los Angeles, have a lot to do with the focus on the interior. Even though, you know, within the big umbrella of architecture, uh, both offices who are my roots, Ton and Billy's and Frank's, uh, pay a lot of attention to interiors. I remember Frank telling me basically, hey, never design a window from the outside, always design it first from the inside out, right? And we're always talking about space. So that sets the path on this kind of interior architecture journey. Uh, I've been teaching, as of two years ago, I stopped teaching but 30 years of teaching in mostly architecture and design schools. And I realized that, you know, what my emphasis have always been is the kind of crafting and the sculpting of that space and this and that experience of the interior which is 98% of our life every day right and more right. so now than ever so that's where i am that's why i ended up being an architect and an interior designer and the educator you know for that area in specific so
1: the amount of time and back to your you know your polymath um, title mm-hmm back the amount of time that you have put into constant learning and developing greater bodies of knowledge and sharing that and that that reciprocal relationship that you have in the in the profession of educating. Um, I'd love you to spend a little bit of time if you would uh, talking about what you think the the future of design education might need to be. Where is mm-hmm.
0: it shifting? Mm-hmm. And you know, design changes so fast. And since I'm two years out of it, I'm I'm feeling like a little bit less, you know, uh, legitimate to talk about that. But uh, just based on my past experience and what I've been seeing, I think that there's a greater concern about the impact that we're making, you know, as educators to the next generation. And I would feel like the the kind of ethical struggle between a designer who is off the world or a designer who is kind of on the outside looking in. What I meant by that is um, if you are kind of off the world, which is the only way that you can design, then everything that is the concern of the world should be the concern of your design career and your profession and your daily work. So that covers climate change. It covers all the concern about inclusivity, social justice, um, and even a deeper understanding of the human condition. Like what does it mean really to live? Uh, and that really, I think in design education, I see a trend towards almost like in all the architecture schools I was looking at where maybe 10 years ago, I see a lot of form making, right? People building models and digital models, whatever. And they're just looking at the building like it's a piece of sculpture. Um, Now, more and more, I see an infiltration of design studio projects that really begin to pay greater attention to the spaces they're making, and I'm hoping this will continue, because I think ultimately, uh, in my world, architecture is there to make an interior, you know, and that's a very opinionated... Way of thinking about architecture, but um, that's how I think about it. You know, it's about that shelter. It's about that habitation. It's about how we connect with the rest of the world. It's really that experience on the interior. The exterior is fleeting, and I think that even spaces in between exteriors, such as spaces in be- between buildings, I qualify that as an interior too. It's a space, you know. So um, I'm hoping that the the design education uh, trend, the trajectory that's going on, which is a reflection of our dealing with the pandemic and the endemic, that we ended up being in interior spaces or making interior spaces out of exterior spaces, assigning those functions of the interior to the outdoor. All of that stuff puts, I think, interior design up in a kind of, in the limelight so to speak right like this is important this cannot no longer be just something that you do after architecture is something you do do at the beginning and with architecture so-
1: Well, there's that 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 uh the human-centric component that we're yeah yeah you're, you're, yeah. you're addressing Absolutely. that if, should we not always be concerned about the user you know and what that experience is of the place of the space as compared to as you would say the the um, architecture as a, as an artifact or a monument or a sculptural piece, which is a, a completely different way of looking at it because it, it, that is in and of itself, Right, it can stand alone, but right. no building stands alone without people, except right. for maybe some of those.
0: Large. Well, also, yeah, to, to tack onto that too. I mean, that's the, the kind of amazing thing and that's what keeps me in architecture as well, is that architecture, does have all these different capability. It can symbolize. It can, you know, present things that are kind of abstract. It makes a reality. Um, it addresses people, but it also addresses a culture. It addresses the world, you know. So there, there are all that, you know. And I, um, but I do think that you're right. The the kind of human centric. And this is a term that we started hearing about fifteen years ago, right. And the human-centered design becomes a kind of a buzzword, um, but you know, understanding what it means to be fully human, not just addressing all the senses, um, which you know, there's been since the 1930s, French philosophers and stuff have been talking about, you know, phenomenology, which is actually not a very popular term to be spoken of in architecture schools for a very long time now, but understanding uh, aspects of basically how we make space and what the spaces impact are, um, extends to architecture as well. Yeah.
1: Um, You're an architect, you're an interior designer, you're an educator, you're a theorist. um, And I'm struck by your uh, your actual locations of habitation that, Mm -hmm. you know, from Hong Kong to Los Angeles, to New York, mm-hmm. to Los Angeles. So, um, major urban areas yeah. and, um, and, and that's, they, they, have to be about place. They're certainly about people in that place, but they have to be about place. So do you, how, how do you feel if at all the places where you, you know, have, have spent time have had an impact on your perspective?
0: Um, I think that's an interesting question. No one had sort of linked that, but in a way, I am a very urban person. That's how I was brought up. Um, And I love cities because I think that they are, they're so potent of memorable experiences, right? They're so full of personality and character and um, it's always intriguing. So um, I think that, you know, Growing up in Hong Kong and seeing that very Blade Runner-esque, you know, West and East mixture and the clashing of things, you know, and, and that affects everything from the way that we speak in the Chinglish style, you know, with English words mixing in between the Cantonese and all this stuff, to the way that the buildings are hybridized and the functions of spaces are hybridized, all of that stuff is it's like an amusement ride, like you're always fully kind of on and being bombarded by these kind of contrasts. And then you go into, for example, Los Angeles, you know, and and I know Los Angeles from two different times. I knew Los Angeles from the late 70s through the 80s, early 80s, and then returning in the 90s. Um, It's always what I love about that, aspect is that los angeles is poised to be that kind of space where nature is still present but then you know like Rayner banham spoke on the four ecologies we have the freeways we have this whole car thing going on we have the quilt of different cultures that spreads over all these you know square miles of los angeles but then we have the mountains and then we have the ocean right and that contrast between the negotiation between nature and this different cultures clashing and kind of moving constantly negotiating space within Los Angeles and you know dealing with cars and getting off of cars and I mean it's amazing and dazzling and always going to be this kind of frontier uh, energy in Los Angeles that I enjoy there's nothing better to kind of lift your spirits than and I ju- just recently posted a video that I was, like, sitting in the car. My husband was, like, driving up this 110 freeway towards downtown in the winter, about 4, 430. And the golden light that we're famous for reflected on all those skyscrapers as, you know, as dust comes along, as it dusk or dawn, I can't remember. Yeah, when, when the sun begins to set. Um, it just, like, it lifts your spirits, like, you know. You can't help but with that light and the color of the light lifts your spirit. And then New York is just, it's starting to feel like London to me a little bit. It Hmm. feels like an old aunt that you always want to go visit. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I spent like six years of like the really formative years, my roots, you know, of my development of my career is in New York. And, you know. I love that city so much and um, and I, I see bringing my daughter ever since she was young, every year to New York and seeing her light up also, and she's there now too. Um, there's something about, you know, just hearing all the foreign tongues being spoken everywhere you go, seeing the different colors, faces, and, you know, and always constantly, there's a kind of push negotiating between what has been done and what's new and new york you know basically jockeying for still the position of of leadership right of cultural leadership mm-hmm. in the world while they struggle with their own you know discrepancies and <laughs> decrepit infrastructure and all that stuff it's it's just wonderful to watch you know and one, wonderful to be but to visit yeah.
1: I was just, I was in Los Angeles over the um, New Year, and I had to run into an office on the 32nd floor uh, downtown on Seventh and Olive, and it has 360 views. And it was that mm-hmm. one of those clear days mm-hmm. where you can literally see forever, and you can mm-hmm. see the mountains, and you get that, that uh, like totally astonishing sense of, I'm on the 32nd floor of a, you know, massive high-rise yeah. and I am yeah. just looking at snow on the mountains and there's the ocean sitting out there and the um, I'm going to say the scale of height and and, and lower and and mm-hmm. vista is uh, and I w- this was a question I was going to ask you for me I am as a native San Franciscan I yeah. love um, proximity to the ocean, and I love the ability to see. So when I'm, I get so over energized in New York because there's so much going on, and I can't, I can't negotiate as easily yeah. my own se- sense of, of self and place. Mm-hmm. But when I see those kind of things, so I was wondering, you know, with with where you have lived and with the um, the the relationships that you've developed with those cities, is there one one type of space or place that makes you more comfortable or do you love always the constant shift?
0: I think that you're bringing a very good point that in the last sort of two decades maybe I start using the term archetypal for Mm -hmm. spaces that we feel comfortable in and I talk to my students often about what's your archetype like what is what is the kind of can you describe the type of space? where it makes you feel comfortable at the very bodily level, right? At the level where I can touch and feel, uh, where I can situate myself. I go back to my childhood when I was uh, born and raised in Hong Kong. We moved into a house when I was seven years old. My dad hired a Canadian architect and then, you know, he was working for the for the British government in housing. So they were able to get like a lease, what we call crown land, which is like a double lease of Chinese land and we built a house that is very Bauhaus style uh, up against a hill looking at the sea, right? And that's always the condition of my comfort, which is you got a mountain behind you and you're looking at ocean. I think that's why I keep returning back to LA. There is that kind of primal condition uh, in a larger scale, right? I'm not in the house, but then in the situation of the city, I'm still having that. Uh, I feel very comfortable about that and in a very weird small way New York does that too because you can be back up against you know a concrete building and you're looking out at the Hudson or whatever you know and I need to be near an edge of land that's what I think that's the archetypal condition and I need someone behind my back you know it's like a dog
1: right (laughs) yeah that comfort um okay so uh the the nature of culture is also something that's very very pervasive in your work and in your thinking and how how important or what's that connection between um i don't know how to say this most appropriately i was going to say culture and the building (laughs) like we see uh we see cultural types of of structures that that belong to culture, um, mm-hmm. and, and then we see places like um, I would say more like New York or like London, where there are a, a, a wider variety of places yeah. that that are um, that are still part of culture because of the people within using the spaces. But mm-hmm. but have you thought about that link between? the culture of the place Uh and the buildings. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're opening up, you know, maybe a doctoral (laughs) subject matter. (laughs) Um, I I remember- Good, we can give it to somebody else. (laughs) Reading like Mike Davis, City of Quartz, which is Mm -hmm. the history of Los Angeles and him talking about scripted spaces on Bunker Hill, where Um, you just naturally feel like you can't do this or spit on the ground or whatever, right? that there is an, uh, an, you know, an embodied uh, thing that designers do to spaces, somehow, that scripted all these rules and regulations without having to post a sign. Right? Mm-hmm. And I think that in, in cities where the influx of different cultures come in and start appropriating spaces, that's where those script can get a little bit blurry and erased. Uh, so when you see farmers market taking over, you know, squares and intersections of streets and stuff like that, it allows people to reimagine a different script for spaces in the urban environment. I think it's very interesting. And even in during our time in this kind of pandemic, where you know you start having restaurants really push out onto the sidewalk of taking over a parking lane and stuff like that it suddenly looked like a different city right it's it, it, the culture of the street already changed long time ago i was working on the article with um, a colleague of mine who's now in liverpool uh, dr paulette singly and we wrote the article called entrancement when and what we all we did was talk about where does interior really end in an urban setting? Does it really end at the facade of the building? And, you know, with her PhD in architectural history, we start talking about, you know, a whole host of resources talking about what the facade really is, like when does the facade really end and where this, the street begins. And then we start talking about like, hey, you know, I in Hong Kong when I was young, Walking by major department stores down Nathan Road in Kowloon, the when the door opens and that air conditioning comes out into that subtropical heat, right, and you feel the interior pushing out. So even in the kind of atmospheric way, or if you go downtown Los Angeles or something like that, sometimes some of the vendors on Broadway, like the streets, like the, you know, merchants would push this stuff out, you know, and you start hearing the boom box going and you start smelling whatever it is and cigarettes and, you know, now pot and whatever going on. And you realize that the interior really does not stop. So I think that what we haven't given a lot of thought about was how cultures of spaces, in fact, gets an injection from the interior Right. Whatever the occupant is, whatever the function is and stuff, it does, infect that kind of spaces of the uh, that is the shared urban, you know, joint property environment. Um, Yeah, I always wondered about squares between the way that, you know, let's say, for example, you go to Finland, you go to London, the squares are different than our squares, you know, the Italian piazza and stuff like that. And I think a long time ago, I forgot which one, I think there is an organization that really only studied public spaces and they publish like 10 rules about how to make a good uh, public plaza and stuff. And I think that a lot of that needs to be revisited and, you know, like maybe culture needs to be sort of looked at in a much more broad way, you know, by the injection of the occupants coming and doing a kind of you know, impromptu performance or something like that that changes things, or people who are semi-permanent, like the recurring, uh, you know, farmers market, or even like some unplanned thing where the interior really pushed out. You know, out of I don't know a flood or I don't know even what. You know,
1: yeah, there's it's that interesting the um, interesting combination of the human culture. And the contextual culture of Mm. the place, because the natural culture—I mean, one could argue the the pandemic endemic has been this external, you know, contextual culture that has had a huge impact on on the way that people behave. But it's it still will be—it's still the human, you know, kind of interaction with whatever that challenge is. Yeah, that's that's kind of. Uh, motivating, if you will, motivating for making any of those shifts, because arguably we could go back to the way that we were if, you know, if when things, you know, calm down, though there's always the progress and those things. And there's a word and I have to go back and find the word. There's a word for once you've learned something, you cannot unlearn it. There's actually a word that describes that.
0: Yeah. I would like to know that you find it. No.
1: Yeah. I will definitely let you know, because I've thought about so that so many times when people go, well, we can just, I'm like, no, you now you know it's so a part that. of. Yeah. You can unlearn yeah. that. Yeah, because it's experiential. It is of. Um, gosh, um, I wanted a, that one of the other questions that I had for you, which kind of goes off in a, a tiny little bit of a different direction, but not. It's um, the unmentionable symposium. Oh, yeah. And I just loved hearing about that, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about the thinking behind it um, with
0: the audience. So, in uh, 2017 and 2019, uh, my colleagues, mostly uh, Heather Peterson, who teaches at uh, who teaches at Woodbury University's School of Architecture and the, the Interior Architecture Department, uh, as well as at that time our department chair Christoph Corner and another colleague who teaches both architecture and interior, Matthew Gillis, we started um, a, and also with a philosophy colleague, um, started imagining um, a a symposium based on a quote that Dave Hickey, the art uh, recently passed, uh, art critic talked about, which is, he said, like, the New ideas are never gonna come from things that we talked about all the time because we've talked about it so much, it gets threadbare. The new ideas are gonna come from those dusty corners with the dust bunnies where we haven't talked about those things for a long time. Um, And we took it as a kind of clue to kind of inspect what architectural education has been. And we realized that there are certain words that we just cannot say in architecture school you know so that would be like you know for a while we can't use the word atmosphere it's too touchy-feely right you can't define it you know from the history of architecture or something like that and there are a whole host of words like that i think it's still somewhere buried in some video somewhere we had all spoken those words and we said these words are unmentionable in architecture school, so that's where the unmentionable came in. And of course, when you Google unmentionable, all you get is underwear, you know. <laughs> yeah. But but unmentionable came from that, and then we sought like a, we just kind of brought that subject out broadly to a national and internationals, mostly academic audience, and just say you know submit anything that would that we haven't talked about for a long time. So We got all kinds of stuff. We got someone sending in uh, things about curtain. Uh, Someone who would come in and say, there is a fantastic avocado green molded fiberglass bathroom that I've been obsessed about. Uh, We have people who are just talking about, you know, sort of like everything from the, the sensation of the color yellow on the paper wallpaper and stuff. So the first symposium, we ended up kicking it off with a production designer, uh, a renowned novelist, um, and an artist who works both in media and, and in different medium, basically. And we post the word interior. said, what is interior to you and your work? And that's how we kicked off that unmeasurable symposium. And then we collected all these people who have presented papers and presentation. And then in 2019, we said, well, for, you know, should we look at some other structure? We've casted a pretty broad net the first time. How about if we look at the structure of a symposium? What does a symposium really mean? And my colleague Heather Peterson went back to study and say, hey, it was, you know, like in Socrates time or something like that, a symposium happens in, you know, the most sort of noted philosopher's house in the best room of the house. And there's a lot of drinking, there's a lot of poetry reading, there's philosophizing and all kinds of stuff, you know, there's a lot of imbibing and stuff and it goes on and so we said okay let's do the 2019 symposium with that in mind so we had a whole host of things from like workshops from you know we had jane rendell who's one of the really you know noted thinkers right now of interior architecture in england Um, we have a bunch of colleagues from pratt and parsons in new york they're also kind of in And California College of Design, who are in interior architecture, so leading thinking and stuff like that, doing workshops. We have music things. We have installations. uh, You know, all kinds of stuff happening in that symposium, but all to kind of say, here are the taboo words. You know, let's go at it because maybe something new will come out of it.
1: Yeah. And what do you think? Did anything new? I'm loved, I am love, and the reason why I ask that question is because I'm often, you know, when you are so caught up in the enthusiasm and the energy of the event or of the activity, and then you walk away and go, did that, what did I take? Did anything continue?
0: Yeah, I think it it did. For those who were there, I think that the idea of marginalization being actually a tool for investigation rather than you know, a marginalized area of practice or subject, it's just not worth it. You can see all kinds of, um, you know, for example, Joe Sanders in New York came and presented the bathroom stall, mm-hmm. right? And and it's about uh, equality, you know, it's about giving access to different people and not stigmatizing them, you know, to, to public spaces of the toilet. Excellent. Yeah, things like that. Right. You know, there is great impact to that. And uh, I wish that we could still continue. And then I think, you know, maybe in time we'll gather enough energy and kind of continue to explore those Mm -hmm. different areas as well. Yeah.
1: Well, you brought me back to the end that I wanted, which is pretty fantastic, because I wanted to give you a chance to share your recent rant um, that you posted. Yeah, well, it's about It's a continuation of this kind of conversation. We're talking about stigmatization or marginalization. um, And so uh, your rant starts. I'm just going to read the first sentence and then I'm going to let you. (laughs) Um, The professionalization of interior design is about safeguarding the health, safety and welfare of the public and about achieving social justice. Period. Where does that go?
0: Um, I'm happy to report that there's some movement, but I'll talk about that later. Uh, It's been a constant struggle for many years. I think maybe interior design has been a university subject, major study degree offering program, less than a hundred years, right? Whereas in architecture, been around for a long time. Uh, There's been centuries of philosophizing, you know, and canon making and stuff in architecture. Um, Interior designers are not protected by neither the title act nor the practice act that architects enjoy, which is you cannot call yourself an interior designer unless you have passed a certain test, right? And uh, you cannot practice, you know, interior design unless you have, you know, the proper licensure and stuff like that. Uh, But we don't have that in our culture right now, you know, with the HDTV and everybody sort of, you know, saying yeah if you have the eye you can do it so there's a diminishing sense that it can be professionalized state by state uh depending on the legislature and political will and lobbying efforts and stuff like that some have granted certain amount of professional licensure to interior design professionals which are mostly women um, and you know,
1: Mostly women in, in a rather staggering majority, somewhere staggering in the majority. 80, yeah. 80% of yeah. interior designers. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. So yeah. Without that licensure, that means that they're, it's like you go to your nail people and your hair people, they all have to be licensed. You can't just, and that protects their livelihood, right? And protects the public health, safety, and welfare. We don't have that interior design, and that's like a majority, like I said, 98% of the time you're in an interior, but you're not, you're not really kind of protecting us from things that could go wrong. You say, what could go wrong? You know, like, I think, for example, Nevada, uh, the reason why they, you can't practice interior design in Nevada unless you're licensed is, you know, somebody specs some weird you know unflammable like flammable things in the casino and a disaster happened and then the state legislature jumped into action said we got to do this but the nemesis of interior designers so far has been the AIA, <laughs> you know which i'm a member of right and i've been in their interior architecture committee for a very long time and then you know just They've been spending a lot of money lobbying against the professionalization of interior designers, giving them a sense of, you know, that they have a licensure test that can kind of prove their professionality. Um, Just in December, the board, executive board of the AIA have changed their tune. So I'm happy to say that they're relaxing that. They no longer are going to say, only architects can do interior or like nobody else, like uh, no test can kind of prove that you can do interior. So there's light on, you know, in the horizon in terms of professionalization, but I think it's a women issue. Like it's, you know, you're, if the majority of the practitioner are women and you're stopping them from having this kind of practice that's professional, uh, protected by licensure, protected by act, title or practice act, you're really basically discriminating against a class of people um, and suppressing the economical, you know, economic livelihood. So for me, it's more of that issue than anything else. Um, So that's my rant, you know, really.
1: Well, you did a very good job and we're going to, I'll post it on the, um, on our website when we have the the posting of your particular podcast, there's the whole transcript and with links to many of the things that we've talked about. Okay, so we'll definitely cool. have that so people can see it. And I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. very much. Yeah. It's, it's been a thank lovely you, conversation.
0: Well. Yeah. Lovely conversation. And the, uh, you know, I'm glad you're doing these podcasts and stuff. It's great. Yeah, I'm enjoying it a lot. So.
1: We, we really, really enjoy sharing the, and it's stories. It's stories that people have to share about what they've been doing within our realm of, you know, place and people and uh, right. and the, right. the greater, um, just it's such an amazing connection. So um, the, the Wonder Podcast is available on all podcast streaming sources. So Apple, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and we will look forward to seeing or hearing speaking with, uh, with all of our audience members again sometime in the near future.